This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Unfortunately, it's happening in Afghanistan is that what everyone feared after the Kabul government collapsed is that very fast um, Afghanistan is developing again into a somewhat peaceful area if you are a terrorist for Al-Qaeda already and maybe in the future also for ISIS. Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler, Senior Director of the Counter-Extremism Project, says the U.S. is between a rock and a hard place. And so our choice is whether we're going to have both fighting each other or we're going to support the Taliban to eradicate ISIS with the price that Al-Qaeda has even more space to go in Afghanistan. So the options are bad, worse, and ugly. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Since the collapse of Afghanistan, the Taliban has been in control, but they're not governing that country in the true sense. The Taliban is facing challenges from ISIS. They're facing challenges from inside the country. There are humanitarian concerns. Winter is coming. There are food concerns, economic concerns. There are global perception concerns. And it all seems to be pointing to a disastrous collapse coming sooner than most people think. Joining us on this program is Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler of the Counter-Extremism Project. He's here to put all of this into context. The Taliban is running... Afghanistan, but they are not in control of the country. And a part of the reason for that is the presence of terror groups like ISIS. And of course, there's Al-Qaeda and several others as well. And it's my understanding from talking to you primarily, but with others subsequently as well, that they need some serious help in getting terrorism under control. Tell us why. Tell us first what their terrorism dilemma is. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, they're now learning the lesson that perpetration of terrorism is easier than the prevention of terrorism. Until very recently, of course, the uh, Taliban were the main perpetrator of violence in this country, uh, way be- before anyone else. And now they are supposed to be controlling and uh, making sure that stuff doesn't blow up in Afghanistan. And they're learning the lessons that there are even more radical elements, in particular the Islamic State in Khorasan province, which has been in the country um, from the very beginning of ISIL. Already in 2014, ISIL sent a delegation to Afghanistan to purposely build up this uh, uh, affiliate there, um, which shows you that it is a significant affiliate, which they will never let go. Uh, The only other place where they've done this worldwide is Libya. Anywhere else, they just accepted the loyalty pledge of other groups and made them part of the network. In those two places, they really built up in Libya as an alternative to Iraq, which didn't work out famously, and in Afghanistan, because it is, and now again, is the center of uh, Islamist terrorism uh, globally. 
because of the presence of Al-Qaeda core and a whole host of Al-Qaeda groups and, of course, now in competition with the Islamic State. Now, what you have seen since the Taliban takeover, starting with the attack on the international airport in Hamid Kasai airport in Kabul, is regular attacks. And we've heard a couple of them, but there are many, many more smaller scale attacks. So you had the airport attack, then you had an attack on a mosque in Kunduz, an attack on a mosque in uh, Kabul, an attack on a mosque in Kandahar, really showing the Taliban that there is no urban area that uh, the Islamic State cannot perpetrate. And then the attack on a really secured military hospital, killing the core commander for Kabul of the, uh, of the Taliban uh, a couple of days ago. Um, they ISIL demonstrating um, that it can have a reach in any urban city. Plus, and this is much less reported in international media, constant near daily attacks on Taliban patrols, on Taliban convoys all over the country. So they, they really do have a challenge on their hands, especially since they now no longer can be sure that they can trust anyone in their own movement. Because ISIL, the Islamic State, is roughly within the same broader ideological spectrum, any disgruntled Taliban, has and will and uh, is going over to ISIL. So that makes it even harder because you can't even trust your own security forces anymore. So, Dr. Schindler, is the world waking up yet to the fact that this is just a matter of time before something truly catastrophic beyond the borders of Afghanistan takes place? Uh, well, I hope so. You know, obviously, the main discussion about Afghanistan is the humanitarian situation, as it should be, because we are coming closer and closer to winter, and it is going to be extremely dire for Afghans. Um, that is the main focus of our discussion right now. Unfortunately, what I can see now is we are seeing the most liberal version of the Taliban, with all the illiberality that they already display, at this point, and it's already deteriorating in the more extreme elements uh, are going through. So, what we are seeing is the Taliban struggling to keep the, the shop together, um, being constantly attacked by ISIL, not being able to trust their own people, by at the same time trying to prevent more Taliban going over to the other side by slowly, surely, and deliberately uh, in, installing pretty much the same policies that they had in the 1990s, while allowing, and no one talks about this, while allowing Al-Qaeda core Al-Qaeda affiliate groups, of which there are Igors and there are Uzbeks and there are Pakistanis and there are some foreigners uh, uh, other than from the region, setting up camp and shop again. Now, what I have already told you a couple of months ago is that already now, today or this year, uh, in summer, there was a court case against a group of Tajiks who were instructed, supported and uh, advised by the Islamic State in Khorasan, the ISIL affiliate in Afghanistan, to conduct attacks against military installations in Germany, classical bomb attacks against those military targets. So already they have started, and this deteriorating battlefield, as far as security is concerned, is only opening up more opportunities for the Islamic State or others to, again, try to plan attacks from Afghanistan towards the outside. Who are the others that might be successful or at least have the best chance of being successful in planning attacks and training there and essentially launching attacks, extraterritorial attacks abroad? Well, you have a viable uh, Al-Qaeda infrastructure in the country, not only the Al-Qaeda leadership, 
but also the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, the uh, Turkestan Islamic party, the Uyghurs, you have Lashkar-e Taiba, Jaisha e Mohammad, you have Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, all being in Afghanistan and very differently to the Islamic State being protected by the Taliban. And the most striking case, we've talked about this before, was the return of Amir ul-Haq, the security chief of Osama bin Laden, one of the most hunted terrorists on this planet, openly returning to Nangaha on video. It's unbelievable that anyone in the Al-Qaeda leadership would have the audacity to do that. He drove with his four-wheel drive, waved to the uh, spectators and the Taliban forces cleared the road for him. So that shows you how the Al-Qaeda leadership sees this promise of the Taliban that they will prevent Al-Qaeda Al or anyone else from using Afghan territory to conduct uh, uh, terror attacks in an area where, as an Al-Qaeda operative a few months ago, you were constantly under the threat of being droned by the Americans or arrested by the Afghans. You now have a smiling and waving top terrorist going back to Afghanistan. That, in my opinion, is the long-term danger that we don't see. We see the spectacular attacks from ISIL. Some you know, react gleefully to it, saying the Taliban, well, deserve now to have the same problems that the government had. But what we don't see, what we don't talk about, is what happens behind the scenes with the Al-Qaeda network. And don't forget, neither Amir al-Haq nor Al-Qaeda has given up on the idea of attacking the West. That's the whole raison d'etre for these individuals. Amir al-Haq has never done anything else in his life. He's not going to start a bakery in Afghanistan. <laughs> of course, he's going to continue doing terrorism. And the Taliban give him now the space and the protection to do so. So, so we have a twin challenge. Mm -hmm. So how does the Western war fatigue, and specifically the U.S.'s fatigue with war in Afghanistan, and geopolitical struggles with Russia and China and even Pakistan and, and others, impact this concern in this region there. Yeah, I mean, this is a real complicated uh, place between a rock and a hard place, to be very honest, because obviously, in order to do your over the horizons operations, you have to have a really reliable human sources network. And unfortunately, the withdrawal and the way it's been done uh, by the international forces for all nations, not just the Americans, really showed any Afghan, don't put your eggs in the basket of the Western nations, they will not help you if push comes to shove. So that's one of the first challenges. The second challenge is that, of course, Pakistan, our long-term frenemy, is already completely uh, helping the Taliban in what they do. And now the Taliban are brokering a deal between the Pakistani government and the Tereke Taliban Pakistan, who, apart from being uh, part of Al-Qaeda, are also opposed to the Pakistan government. So we will not see hard moves of the Pakistani government against the Al-Qaeda infrastructure. We will possibly see moves by the Pakistani government supporting the Taliban against the ISIL infrastructure, but that's only 50% or even less than 50% of the problem that I see in Afghanistan right now. It is good when the ISIL structure become, comes under military pressure if the Taliban are able to do that, but that doesn't say anything about the Al-Qaeda infrastructure. And I'm wondering what these guys are doing. I have not seen Al-Qaeda opening clothing stores in Kabul so far. So is Al-Qaeda the other 50% of the problem, or is there another... Sorry? Minimum. Minimum. <laughs> yeah, because you, it's the, we are back at 2001. The only question is, will Al-Qaeda bother to build the camps or will they continue what they've done the last 20 years, mobile training of their fighters, i.e. without a physical training infrastructure that you could eradicate with an airstrike, training people in houses, going into mosques, 
to recruit uh, and then send them out. I think it's only a matter of time before at least online inspired attacks from Al-Qaeda uh, will emanate out of Afghanistan. And the Taliban will find an excuse why this has nothing to do with them or why this would not be breaking their promise. Civil war, is that coming? Well, civil war is a large word, especially in a country like Afghanistan, who really tragically since 1979 has never not, nothing seen nothing else but civil war. Let me, think, let yeah. me break it down then. Let me be specific about this. Um, there are those, as you mentioned, that are Afghans who uh, are a part of the Taliban who yep. have tired and are skeptical of what the Taliban can accomplish and are frankly more hardcore than the Taliban and are moving towards ISIS and taking with them towards ISIS their animosities and their ingrown concerns about living, growing up, being there. Uh, and then there is what ISIS has designs on, and that is essentially destabilizing the 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 country itself, uh, putting it in a position where it would be more amenable for them to get done what they want to do. So that is the kind of approach to civil war that I'm thinking. Yeah, I mean, that one is absolutely already going on. I mean, you will really? not see a quiet, um, stable Afghanistan. I mean, even in places where you don't see frequent attacks uh, in Herat, they are now on their third governor since they've taken over in the 16th of September, uh, of August. You know, one guy being replaced by the next guy. So the Taliban seem to have increasing problems holding even their interfactional uh, uh, movement together at this point now that they achieve power. Uh, plus, you will have this constant trip, trip of attacks. And as I said, what we hear is just a, you know, a more spectacular bomb attacks. What we don't hear is all the roadside bombs that go off every day. So, you know, this is still a very, very unstable country. And I don't see this getting any better. And unfortunately, that will also mean the Taliban will get more and more paranoid, which means they will turn the screws even further and further and further on the little civil liberties they still allowed at the beginning. As I, as I said already, this is the most liberal Taliban we will see for a while. The U.S. and the West don't, it's very clear, they don't have the kind of intelligence presence they had when the military was there. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. So how are they keeping an eye on things? Yeah, that's a really, really difficult question. I mean, obviously, there is no military infrastructure left. We really actually kept our word as the international community and withdrew everything. Some governments, like the German government, are contemplating maybe sending some diplomats back, but that's not eyes and ears on the ground because they're not supposed to collect information. They're supposed to make sure that some humanitarian deliveries don't get completely absorbed by the Taliban and actually reach the population. Um, we can only do outside monitoring now and without any basis in the physical basis in the region. The next basis of the American forces is in uh, Qatar and uh, the German forces are nowhere to be seen. Russia is not about to allow the Americans to set up new bases inside Central Asia, as we did very conveniently in 2001, which was a great jumping point for Afghanistan. The Chinese are building one after the other military bases in Central Asia right now because they're getting increasingly worried. So unfortunately, while we are seeing this great power competition heating up between the US and China, China seems to be really trying to you know, make sure that it understands what in Afghanistan would be a great partner to cooperate, in particular, since we don't have the same problem on this issue 
With China, then we have immediately with Pakistan, because for Pakistan, there is groups that they accept and groups that they don't accept. And both of those uh, categories belong to Al-Qaeda, right? And so we're never really sure um, in the cooperation and never were really sure in the cooperation with Pakistan, how much we're actually talking to friends and how much we're talking to our enemies. So, you know, it's really difficult to see. There's no channel of communication or cooperation with, with, with Iran, which was the other neighbor that has, you know, significant capabilities to understand what's going on. But as you know, famously, we are not in a position to cooperate with them either. So we really are in the most tricky regional situation, in my opinion, as far as America and Europe is concerned, more complicated than we were in the late 90s, early 2000s. Well, forget about Pakistan and Russia and China. Uh, and 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 the problems you, you call Pakistan a frenemy, which is probably true. Uh, I mean, forget about that, just in a figurative sense, not literally. But America's allies are angry with the U.S., not happy with the U.S. I mean, having conversations with some of the EU nations and the NATO nations within the last few months, they are still very angry with the U.S. about what happened with the departure from Afghanistan. And there's also this question about what happened with the French and the Australian submarine deal. So the U.S. hasn't done itself any favors um, in kind of preparing itself to address this situation, at least as far as we know, because obviously they're not going to say anything out, out public about what they're doing. But it looks as though it's a lot more difficult to respond now if something does blow up or forgive the uh, the wording there overnight in Afghanistan that would threaten the West or something from Afghanistan that was set up and planned and plotted there that that goes bump in the night here in the U.S. Well, yeah, I agree to a certain extent, but terrorism is luckily still a unifying factor where people understand that, you know, neither Al-Qaeda nor ISIL has any favorites, uh, uh, neither us nor the uh, us Europeans nor the Americans nor Russia or China. We are equally all threatened by them so that this could be a unifying factor. Secondly, I understand the European complaints about how it was done uh, by the US. On the other hand, no one said to the Europeans that they shouldn't be able to build up their own logistical infrastructure in Afghanistan so that they could withdraw because this was a US-Taliban agreement. It wasn't a German or EU Taliban agreement. It was a US-Taliban agreement. No one would have forced the Europeans to leave, but you know, despite a U.S. administration, which didn't put the transatlantic relationship pretty much at the priority list as before, as you know, between 2016 and 20, the Europeans didn't take the logical step about, you know, building up their own capabilities so that they can act independently of the U.S. And then complaining that you relied on the U.S. infrastructure um, when you have definitely the capability, money and capacity to do, you know, this in parallel, is, I think, a little bit unfair towards the Americans. We're not supposed to always rely on the Americans. So, you know, the Europeans should, and I'm German, and I used to be part of the German government infrastructure. I understand, but uh, to be totally honest, uh, you know, if you're weak, you can't complain afterwards if the big guy makes a decision. So, mm -hmm. you know, no one prevented the Europeans. I mean, quite to the contrary. I think the Trump administration made very clear what they mean the Europeans should be doing. And they just waited him out. Okay. So, yeah, I'll be back at square one. All right. So um, you mentioned weakness. I want to talk about that in a moment. But first, you also mentioned your connection to the German government. And I want to say that uh, 
Hans Jacob Schindler was the uh, UN's uh, Al-Qaeda Taliban ISIL monitor uh, coordinator for the UN's Al-Qaeda Taliban monitoring team for years before joining the counter-extremism project. But uh, tell us a bit about what your background is and was. Yes, uh, thank you so much. So I, my academic background is in terrorism. I have a master's and a PhD in international terrorism and then worked for the German government from the beginning of 2001 on, so long before the attacks on the Al-Qaeda file in uh, Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan, both uh, in Germany as well as in the country. Um, then was posted six years in Iran um, at the German embassy there with a security role uh, and then joined the private sector and then eventually the UN as, as the monitoring team, which is advising the Security Council, not only on the developing threat globally by Al-Qaeda, ISIL and the Taliban, but also on the development of the global counterterrorism sanctions regimes that are focused on Al-Qaeda and ISIL and a separate regime that is focusing on the Taliban leadership. And Conveniently, the Taliban have given everyone the um, good situation that they appointed the same people to the same post that they had in 2001. So this old regime from, uh, 2000 and, uh, from 1999 is actually perfectly targeted towards this current Taliban government because everyone who used to be in government is again in government is already on that list. So it's actually the perfect instrument if the Security Council can agree to maintain it. So... Uh, you know, that, that's in mm. a nutshell, I think, what, what is important to me. All right. So um, back to the weak point, the Taliban. What is their weak point? Well, yeah, f- the first weak point about the Taliban is that you have to, you know, stop thinking about the Taliban as the Taliban. Mm. The Taliban are a conglomerate of power centers, one in Kandahar, one in the east of Afghanistan, the, the Haqqani network, who is now in charge of three ministries, uh, Interior Ministry, Refugee Ministry, and, uh, and, and Aviation Ministry in Kabul. Then there is the Eastern Taliban uh, centered around Herat. And then there is the Northern Taliban um, where they are not yet in full control because in order to get the North, Kunduz, Mazar-e-Sharif, Parakshan, they had to make a lot, a lot of agreements with local commanders who were fighting the Taliban until the beginning of August this year. So they're not completely in control in the North either. So this means... You do have already divisions within the Taliban, some more hardline uh, in the east, some more traditional Islamist in the south, some more geared towards looking towards Iran as a very important economic factor for the country in, around Herat, and some more in the north where you don't have Pashtuns, which is the core ethnicity of the Taliban movement, but primarily Taliban who are Tajiks and Uzbeks and always thought and rightfully feel they are second class. If you look through the ministries, there's not really good toothpick or touching representation, i.e. none. So, you know, this is a difficult movement to keep together. As long as you had a common enemy, the Americans, the international community, the government in Kabul, this is much easier. It's always was easy for the Taliban to say attack, attack, attack. Now they have to rule, which means uncomfortable decisions have to be made, compromises have to be struck. And that makes this constant negotiations, as I said, third governor in Herat since the 16th of August, um, much more complex, especially since you have now a structure that serves as an alternative for every Taliban who doesn't feel he got enough out of this system, which is called the Islamic State. There was a thing called the Afghan resistance um, right around the time the government collapsed uh, earlier this year. Many of the fighters went to the 
the Panjshir Valley. Uh, some of them left the country. Um, some of them were killed, and you know, um, who knows where the rest of them are. What do you think is the status of the Afghan resistance? Is there one? Well, I mean, certainly there is a small, you know, flicker of resistance called mm. the National uh, Resistance Front (NRF), um, led by Ahmad Massoud, who is the son of the very famous Ahmed Shah Massoud. Now, he just met people in Tehran, which I think is no coincidence because the attacks in uh, in Kunduz, as well as the attack of ISIL uh, uh, against the mosques in Kandahar were targeting the Shia community, very similar to what ISIL did, or the Al-Qaeda in Iraq that became ISIL did in the early 2000s, trying to ignite a sectarian war. And don't forget, there are thousands of Afghans who fought with the Iranians in Syria as one of the shock troops that they employed, who are Shiite Hazara. And they are willing to be motivated anytime. And more attacks against the Hazara Shiite community, which is a tiny minority in, uh, in Afghanistan, will push Iran to possibly reactivate this. So this is one, one uh, form that this can, can go, go on. However, at the moment, um, the National Resistance Front is holed up on the ridges of uh, the Panjshir Valley, which sounds very familiar because in 2001, that was also one of the centers of resistance against the Taliban from Ahmed Shah Massoud. But what was different at that time is that Ahmed Shah Massoud and the Northern Alliance that he met also had Badakhshan, parts of Mazar-Sharif, parts of Kunduz under their control, which means you had a land border to resist and control territory um, um, that you could resupply. Ahmad Massoud, unfortunately, is holed up. The Panjshir Valley is just, uh, I think, 180 kilometers north of Kabul in the middle of the country, not bordering any outside country, not even Pakistan. So if this resistance would grow, resupply is a real, real issue. Not that weapons in Afghanistan have ever been a problem since 1979. There's enough ammunition and explosives to go around, but actually support in financial or, or, or arms terms is going to be very hard if it's still in the middle on an island. And then only the valley reaches. The valley floor is totally under control of the Taliban. Very last thing. Um, the U.S. and the West helping the Taliban. This is still something that a lot of people find foreign, that thought. But is that, at the end of the day, what is going to have to happen if disaster, a bigger disaster, is averted? Well, I mean, the only help that the Taliban accepts from anyone on the outside at this point is against the Islamic State. So, you know, yes, of course, that will eliminate part of the problem. But as I said, we do have another part of the problem that the Taliban deliberately don't talk about. And so, you know, yes, it may be helpful to eradicate ISIL, but what about Al-Qaeda? So we're helping the guys who are harboring, sheltering and protecting Al-Qaeda until Al-Qaeda is strong enough to do another attack. I'm very critical of this. I'm very critical. The Pakistanis are already helping the Taliban against ISIL because that's in their own interest. So, you know, they got help. If they can't manage with ISI, who's been managing to keep us at bay as the international community for 20 years, they won't be managing much better if we help them. So, you know, let the Pakistani clean their own garden here. Um, and I would be very hesitant to help the Taliban because these guys simply cannot trust it because their own internal issues prevent them from becoming a liable partner. They need to protect Al-Qaeda. That's part of their bigger network of organizations. And they will always do. They will limit how much they will tell us about ISIL because their own guys are going over to ISIL. So 
it may be helpful to a certain extent to them, but it's certainly not going to be unmitigatedly positive for us if we help the Taliban. That is indeed a very complicated and morose <laughs> prognosis, but the truth is the best way, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously I agree. This is not a rosy picture. And uh, as I said, we are now looking forward to a, in inverted commas, to a real humanitarian crisis, which adds another layer of complexity because the Taliban now want taxes. Of course, they want taxes from any humanitarian organizations operating in Afghanistan. So, you know, already they see humanitarian deliveries as a basically massive ATM that they want to tap, tap in for their own. You know, they don't really care if people have food in Afghanistan, but they do care that if we care about the food in Afghanistan, they can siphon off a large amount of that money for themselves. Mm-hmm. Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler, Senior Director of the Counter-Extremism Project, thank you, as always, for this great insight. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler, Senior Director of the Counter-Extremism Project, as we've said before, is a constant source of great information and insight when it comes to difficult topics dealing with terrorism. Coming up on our next episode... Another difficult situation, this one in Eastern Europe, on the border of Belarus and Poland. This is a challenge to the whole of the European Union. And this is not a migration crisis. This is the attempt of an authoritarian regime to try to destabilize its democratic neighbors. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, after leaving the White House today and a conversation with President Joe Biden about that and many other problems facing the European Union. But this one carries the possibility of getting much worse before it gets better. This will not succeed. We know the patterns. We're used to that by seeing how there was the attempt to influence our democratic elections. We see the cyber attacks, we see the misinformation. Now we have this hybrid attack uh, by instrumentalizing migrants uh, at the EU-Belarus border. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about this program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green. One word at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, we invite you to follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast, and that is at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. Also, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast as well. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter, Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey guys, Jay Cutler. Started a new podcast called Uncut with Jay Cutler. Most of you know me from the NFL, some of you have seen me on Instagram, and some of you know me from the reality TV world. Each week I'm taking you along with me as we discuss football, trending topics, and whatever's going on in my life each week. I'm bringing along people that are special in my life, former teammates, friends, and some new people that I like and respect. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Podcasting? I think I'm doing this right. Can't wait to get started with you. Go subscribe now. Uncut with Jay Cutler, Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.